three, two, one, zero. Everyone knows that one of NASA's major goals is to observe and explore planets all over the universe. Well, for 40 years now, NASA has been monitoring a very unusual planet in the Orion Spur of the Milky Way galaxy. This planet has all the ingredients for life. It has an atmosphere rich in nitrogen and oxygen. There's liquid water falling out of the sky and pooling into oceans on the surface. The poles of this planet are covered with sheets of ice. And over time, we realize the ice is changing very dramatically. In fact, just recently, a huge iceberg broke off of one of these ice sheets. That iceberg was about the size of the state of Delaware. NASA's been monitoring all these mysterious changes on a planet pretty close to home. You may not have realized that NASA flies missions to Earth. Well, all I have to say is I didn't even know that either. Christy Hansen runs logistics for Operation Icebridge, a NASA mission that studies changes at the Earth's polar regions. I worked on human spaceflight. International Space Station program, yeah. Hubble, work with astronauts. So when you say the general public didn't, I worked at NASA for 11 years and I had no idea. They <laughs> aircraft that fly all over the planet collecting data on Earth sciences. From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Fowler. I want to get to some of the big questions people have been asking since early July. That's when that big new iceberg broke away, or calved, to use a term favored by iceberg people. For answers, I drove out to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. One of the chief scientists working on Operation Icebridge agreed to talk with me. Oh, wow. His name is Joe McGregor, and he's a glaciologist, a guy who studies glaciers. There are three major ice sheets, the Greenland ice sheet, the East Antarctic ice sheet, and the West Antarctic ice sheet. And just to give you a sense of how big these things are, If the West Antarctic ice sheet melted, if all that ice just suddenly turned into water, it would raise sea levels by more than 16 feet. And one of the big questions for Joe and his research team is exactly how fast Earth's polar ice is melting. But until very recently, some of the most basic things about the ice sheets remained unknown. About 20 years ago, the mindset that a lot of scientists had was that ice sheets changed relatively slowly over time, and that large changes in the ice sheets really took centuries, if not thousands of years. And then, because of satellites that NASA and other space agencies had put up, we realized that we were seeing some dramatic changes that were occurring much faster than scientists had ever expected. And that motivated us to understand ice sheets much better. We go out now with newer satellites and planes through Operation Icebridge, and we see changes happening. Things that we used to think took centuries, we now understand can happen at quite fast rates. And those appear to be connected to climate change and is accentuated in polar regions. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is that the, the ice caps reflect a lot of sunlight, a lot of heat back into space. And as the sea ice has been going away, that actually accentuates the changes. Absolutely. Sea ice on the surface of the Arctic Ocean and on the oceans that surround Antarctica is white, typically. And that reflects a lot of the energy back into the atmosphere. If you have more melting because of warmer temperatures or warmer oceans, that sea ice goes away, but then you're exposing more dark ocean water. That ocean then absorbs more of that heat, and it's a vicious cycle. It's a feedback. 
Understanding that feedback is also one of the goals of Operation Icebridge. We try to measure how thick the sea ice is and how that changes year over year over as large an area as possible, which is quite hard to do because it's a very large area. I want to hear more about how the polar ice sheets are changing. But first, I want people to have a picture in their mind about what it's like to be flying over the ice sheets in a NASA research plane. So let's listen to Christy Hansen. First time I was learning about it, I, I was wondering, you know, what kind of airplanes, what kind of science instruments do you fly? And I thought, okay, you know, I can't wait to go down to Wallops Flight Facility and learn about these airplanes. The aircraft, which is an old Navy military aircraft that used to hunt for submarines, is amazingly suitable for doing these kinds of science missions because it can fly low and slow. You know, it has a, a good climbing rate because it's a has a four-engine turboprop, so it can go up and down pretty easily, and it can navigate through tight glacier valleys and up over ridges. And what you hear constantly on the P3 is a uh, So you have that engine sound continuously, right? So you're supposed to be wearing noise-canceling headsets, but they're a pain in the ass to deal with. So I, I take mine off at least for half of the flight, right? And then you're screaming in the other person's ear. So in general, on the aircraft, you have two pilots in the front of the plane. Usually in the back of the plane, there's a microwave. So a lot of times the social part of the plane is in the back when people are heating up their ramen noodles. Sit in the back of the plane, you have instrument operators. Typically, these guys are engineers, and they're looking at the data as it's coming through. A lot of these guys have their flight history data on the plane with them, so they can build a graph of the ice height and then immediately compare it to what it looked like the year before. Hey, there's a big drop in this. You know, so you hear these conversations. Hey, look at this data set. It looks like there's been an elevation change in this glacier X in the past two years. Or we have a, a guy who operates a, a digital camera. And he, you know, there's not a lot of windows on the P3, but he gets the nice big bubble window that everyone runs over. I feel like the plane's going to flip over because there's only a couple windows, right? Every, all these little heads are poking out this tiny window trying to see. When you, when you get on an old military plane, you, you know, you can see the wires and you see some fabric and it looks old. The heat could stop working at any time. It's an old plane, right? And I remember thinking, we're going seven hours over the ice, you know, in this thing. But it's a, it is a workhorse. I mean, it is, out of all the NASA aircraft, my absolute favorite NASA airplane, because it, it is a beast. And it's a pretty open, very casual environment on the plane. You, you can walk into the cockpit, you know, you can see the ice, everyone's talking. And the plane starts diving to 1,500 feet. So the aircraft thinks it's going into landing mode and alarms will actually go off in the cockpit because it's a landing gear warning, right? So that took me a little while to get used to. I'm like, can you turn that off? I don't need to hear any alarms. Um, flies down to 1,500 feet. And the first time I was flying through a glacier valley was the most beautiful and amazing scenery I've ever seen in my entire life. And at 1,500 feet on the ice, you look out the window and you feel like you're on the ice. You feel like you're five feet above the ice, as if you could lean out of the window and actually drag your hand along the glacier. And I thought, how fortunate am I to be one of the very few human beings who, who gets to see this ice and this changing ice, the importance of our future, so up close and personal. It's an incredible environment. Pristine, intimidating, wild, beautiful. Is there a, a, a memory you have of Antarctica? I mean, so you, you, you talked about actually being on the ice sheets too. So, Prior to my experience with Operation Icebridge, I had been to Antarctica twice as part of uh, ground traverses. We would snowmobile across the ice sheet, uh, be in small groups for days, moving our camp, trying to learn more about how the ice was flowing and uh, what was below the ice. 
even something as basic as the shape of the Antarctic continent is something that we don't automatically know right now. No, absolutely not. There are, in fact, mountain ranges beneath the ice that you would never know of looking at the very flat surface. This sounds incredible, the idea that there are hidden mountain ranges in the, on the planet that we didn't even know about. They're under ice. So we didn't even know the mountains were there. And how do you probe that? The way that was initially used, which is fairly labor intensive, so it's not so commonly used anymore, is to make seismic measurements from the ground. You set off an explosive and the sound generated by that explosive travels through the ice and reflects off the rock beneath it and then comes back up and you record it with your array of seismometers, and from that you can tell how thick the ice is. What sort of an explosive are we talking about? We're talking about charges, about a third of a pound is what's most commonly used to measure uh, the thickness of ice that might be a mile or two thick. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing we do on the ground. We also, as part of Operation Icebridge, make radar measurements to measure the thickness of the ice and the structure of the ice within it. And the way that came about is actually thanks to military pilots in the early 50s following the development of radar altimeters. Radar altimeters are used to measure the height of the aircraft above the surface. And when they started to fly over the Greenland ice sheet in the 50s, they discovered that sometimes the radar altimeters didn't work very well. They would make you think that you were much higher above the surface than you actually were. And they reported that back to the engineers, and eventually they, we realized that that's because the radar waves were actually probing through the ice and uh, measuring the height above the bedrock below the aircraft. And we can make use of that scientifically, and that's how we now measure the thickness of the ice in Greenland and Antarctica. Talk to us a bit about the, uh, the aircraft that are used. Yeah, so I have uh, scale model examples here. A P-3 Orion aircraft, this guy right here. It's got the engines, <laughs> the propellers. <laughs> it's a, uh, it has four propellers. The one that NASA owns was built in the 1960s. The key instrument back then for the Navy was a tail boom magnetometer. So that would detect variations in the magnetic field. And when it flew over a large steel tube, which is essentially what a sub is from a geophysical perspective, the signal would be much larger and uh, a magnetic anomaly. And from that, you'd find your submarine. Uh, these days, we're not trying to find submarines. We're trying to understand the geology beneath the ice. The ice sheet is shaped the way it is, partly because of geology. But most important of all is what's changing right now. And that involves changes in the thickness that we can easily measure by knowing whether the surface of the ice is going up or down. And we measure that using laser altimeters. These are essentially laser rangefinders pointed down. They measure the ice surface thousands of times per second, and they have a scanning pattern so we can measure as large a swath of the surface as possible. We fly the same places along the same tracks year after year so we can know exactly how the surface is changing, how much ice we're gaining or losing each year. No, I, I love human spaceflight, but unless you're an astronaut, you're doing it all from here. Whereas in Earth science missions, you go out directly into the field yourself and it's like you're there, you're, you're, you're studying the Earth, you see the beauty of the Earth. 
There aren't a lot of divert sites in case there's an engine failure. There's weather that crops up out of nowhere. Can you land in zero, zero conditions? Meaning, you know, we take off, it's sunny. We go collect our science. Storms can crop up in a short amount of time. Could you land the aircraft? You know, you're just out there doing it. And I, I love that. We've heard in the news that there's been a big event in Antarctica, that a very, very large part of the ice sheet, a big iceberg is calved off. Is this, is this actually something different and significant, or is it just part of the normal process down there? It's unclear as of right now. Calving of large icebergs from Antarctica is a natural process. That's been occurring for as long as there's been ice down there. It will continue occurring in the future, even if there were no additional warming. This iceberg, the way in which it broke off, where it broke off, appears to be unprecedented in the record of our observations, which stretch back uh, many decades now. It was probably first observed in the early 20th century. But it remains to be seen as to whether or not this calving of this iceberg will significantly affect the stability of the ice shelf as a whole. And there's an ongoing debate in our community uh, based on our best understanding of how these ice shelves hold themselves together as to what will happen as a result. We know, at least from initial measurements, that the calving of this iceberg has not suddenly led to the collapse of the ice shelf. And that's good news. It's a very large ice shelf, and it holds back a lot of ice that exists on the Antarctic Peninsula. If that ice shelf were to suddenly collapse, then we would expect that the glaciers that it's holding back will accelerate and discharge more ice into the oceans and lead to higher sea levels. This is something that even I, as a scientist, don't have a very good handle on. I mean, when people talk about rising sea levels, is, is this something that we will see an, a, you know, a very noticeable difference in our lifetime? Is this something that's going to happen over the course of many centuries? Or is, 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 is the essence of science that we actually don't know yet? We know that as the ice continues to retreat, as the ice sheets continue to lose mass, we know that sea levels will rise. But exactly how much is uncertain. When I say exactly, we can reasonably expect that there will be at least a foot of sea level rise associated with the continued retreat of the ice sheets. What we don't over what sort of time though? Within by the end of this century. Really? A foot by the end of the century. There are computer models that do their best to take everything we know about these ice sheets and apply the climate scenarios that we use to understand what our future is. And they can lead to significant rates of sea level rise uh, within a couple centuries on the order of an inch per year. What we don't know is whether by the end of the century, we will see even higher sea levels and whether we have perhaps inadvertently initiated a process that will lead to several more feet of sea level rise. We don't know for certain whether or not the West Antarctic ice sheet has truly begun to collapse, that would lead to a dramatic change in sea levels. We're talking well more than 10 feet of sea level rise. Because of that risk, we really want to know the answer to that question. The guys who have been flying many years more than I have can visually see with their eyes, that's how well they know the individual glaciers and they know the patterns of the sea ice. They can see changes every year when they're flying. Like the sea ice extent looks less this year. I can see with my eyes the, the physical changes. 
We collect the data, we report on it, we show the trends, we show the sea ice is thinning. You, you look at that and you just think, if you could bring the general population and the public onto the airplane so they could see it themselves. It's hard for me because I even have friends who, who don't necessarily believe in climate change or global warming. They're just people who just, I think it's because my theory is that they just don't want to believe in it. So they're just going to say it's not happening because to think about what's really happening is, is extremely depressing. We're most concerned about what's going on in West Antarctica. The West Antarctic ice sheet has the same amount of ice in it as does Greenland. But most of that ice is resting on bedrock that's well below sea level. And glaciologists have long known that an ice sheet that's resting on rock below sea level is a lot more vulnerable to changes from the ocean and it's unstable as compared to an ice sheet that's mostly resting on bedrock above sea level, as is the case in Greenland and East Antarctica. I know that one of the things that we measure of the uh, you know, the West Antarctic ice sheet is the mass, and yep. it is losing quite a bit of mass every year. We know that with high confidence because we have three different types of measurements, physically different types of measurements, that are giving us similar answers. So we don't just know that from laser altimeters. We also know that from gravity measurements from space. And we also know that by comparing how much ice is added each year through snowfall to how much ice is being discharged each year from these glaciers. West Antarctica is losing mass. The Greenland ice sheet is losing mass. And East Antarctica is probably losing a little bit of mass as well. I know for the Greenland ice sheet, you're talking something close to 200 billion tons a year. Right. So the, the, the quantities of ice are absolutely massive. So Greenland right now is losing, actually, it's now closer to 300 billion tons of ice per year. When you do the math on that, that works out to thousands of tons of ice per second. Is melting is melting. And that's so we're Greenland. talking about house size amounts of ice that are being lost from these ice sheets every second. That's Joe McGregor. He's deputy project scientist for NASA's Operation Ice Bridge. We also heard this episode from Christy Hansen. She's Airborne Sciences Manager at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. As a scientist, my career has often been driven by pure curiosity. I just love learning anything new about the universe that I possibly can. But talking to people like Christy and Joe kind of gives me pause. You know, I'm walking down the hall after speaking with them, learning that there's a house-sized chunk of ice melting every second. And it's not that this has no emotional impact on me. I'm a human being. I'm hoping to be alive in, in 40, 50 years from now, when things may actually be quite a bit different than they are now. This sort of information really requires you to slow down a little bit, pause, think about what we're learning, and think about what the implications are going to be for you. This is not a story about something distant in the universe, a faraway planet, what's going on on Mars or Jupiter. This is about the planet that's right under your feet, and that's the most important planet to all of us.
Thanks for listening in on this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love for you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. This episode of Orbital Path was produced by David Schulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Spotsler back on Planet PRX. Signing off for now, I'm Michelle Fowler. A little bit of dead stardust. <laughs>